0: Good morning. Specifically, you can turn to Romans chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 12 through 17 this morning. It's been said that there are only two things in this world you can be sure of, death and taxes. And Romans 5, 12 through 17 is not about taxes, but it does build an argument that rests on the obvious certainty, just the matter-of-fact givenness of death, the certainty of death. As someone else has put it, nothing is guaranteed in life except death. Whatever you might hope for, wish for, none of it's guaranteed, but you will die. 10 out of 10 people die. And if you haven't visited a cemetery recently, I, I recommend it. It's so good for the soul. Tomorrow marks the Six-year anniversary of the death of our son, Isaac, and nothing reminds me of my mortality like walking through Woodlawn Cemetery. Row after row of headstone with names and dates and sometimes faces etched on those headstones, they all just declare, like in, in surround sound, you are going to die too, Every time I'm there, just this reality, I'm going to die. And though we may be more or less conscious of that fact at different times, that fact of our own mortality is never in doubt. But what happens to us when we die? That is something we do wonder about. Something we worry about, and even disciples of Jesus who have trusted in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sins, for the promise of eternal life. Even disciples of Jesus do entertain doubts from time to time, don't we? Thought might run through your mind Am I really saved? Are all my sins really forgiven? Will I really be among those who enjoy the glory of God forever? In Romans chapter chapter 1 through chapter 4, Paul answered this question, kind of the overarching banner there is this question, how can someone be right with God? How can we be right with God? And the answer is justification by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, which anyone, Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, anyone can receive by faith. You can trust in Jesus and be right with God, and when we come to Romans 5, kind of the focus of Paul's argument shifts some, and the question is something like, how can we be sure now that we're right with God? How can we be sure that we're right with God? And in one through four, his focus was on God's saving work through Jesus in history, in the past, and in chapters five through eight, Paul's focus is on the glorious future that rises out of what God did in the past through Jesus. Jesus did something in history, and that changes the the entire course of redemptive history. All of the future of the world is different because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. There is a glorious future that results from that work, and Paul's goal now in chapters 5 through 8 is to establish you in hope and certainty, conviction and assurance about your future, that results from what Jesus did in the past. But there are two main threats to your hope and assurance. You and everyone you know is some combination of sinner and sufferer. you're, You're a sinner because you sin, and you're a sufferer because, well, because you sin, that has consequences, ramifications in life, but you also suffer because other people sin against you, and that hurts, and you're a sufferer because you live in a fallen world under the curse of human sin, and so even if nobody is directly sinning, bad things happen. Suffering is a reality of life, and sin and suffering are two major threats to assurance, right? I still sin. And when I sin, that's when I'm most prone to think something like, am I really forgiven? And I still suffer. And when I suffer, that's when I'm most prone to think things like, does God really love me? Is he actually for me? How could those promises of a glorious future be true for me if God is allowing this to happen in my life? And so all the time, some combination of those two things, sin and suffering, are just threatening Hope and confidence and assurance. But hope for the future and assurance of glory secured by the work of God in Christ is the focus of Romans 5 through 8. And Paul tackles these two realities of sin and suffering head on. We saw a couple weeks ago, Romans 5, 1 through 5, that because we have already been justified in Christ and we, we... can enjoy peace with God now, and we can rejoice in God now, and not only rejoice in hope of future glory, but rejoice even in our sufferings now. And then we saw last week in Romans 5 6 through 11 that if Christ died for us while we were sinners, then how much more confident can we be that we will be saved from the wrath of God? On the day of judgment, if one, we're not sinners anymore, we've been reconciled to God, and two, Jesus is not dead anymore, He's alive. Paul is building up hope and confidence and assurance. And so now we come to Romans 5, 12 through 21, and we're going to be just through uh, verse 17 this morning. Paul is laboring here to assure you that the world-saving work of Christ The world-saving work of Christ is greater in absolutely every sense than the world-destroying work of Adam. The world-saving work of Christ is greater in every sense than the world-destroying work of Adam. The effects of Jesus' saving work on human history are greater. They are better. They are broader. They are deeper. They are stronger than the effect of Adam's sin on human history. Let me say that again and then prove it to you from the text. The effects of Jesus' saving work on human history are greater, wider, higher, deeper than the effects of Adam's sin on human history. So I want to invite you to stand with me if you're physically able as we receive with reverence and humility and faith above all. God's Word, Romans 5, 12 through 17. Reveal things to us in your word that we would not know any other way and that we would never believe if they weren't spoken to us by you. If anyone else tried to convince us of things like this, we would never believe it. But because you say it and every word that comes from your mouth is true, then we believe you. And in believing you, we have security and joy. And so may those blessings be ours now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The main point of this passage is that Jesus is better than Adam. That one man, Jesus Christ, is better than the first man, Adam. God's grace. In Christ is greater than sin in Adam. Justification trumps condemnation. Life swallows up death. This whole section begins in verse 12 with the first half of a comparison. Just the first half, not the second half. It trails off and leaves us hanging. Paul says, just as sin came into the world through one man. And when somebody says, just as X, we're just kind of waiting for them to say, so also Y. And Paul doesn't. He leaves us hanging. Don't don't worry, he does finish the thought in verses 18 through 19, but we're going to leave that for next week, so you have to come back. But before Paul gets to any similarity, because that's the comparison he sets up, there's some similarity, some parallel between the first man, Adam, and Jesus, and suddenly he changes courses, and before he gets to any similarity between Adam and Jesus, it's like he just steps on the brakes and says, wait a minute, there are some massive differences. There are huge differences. Differences, twice he says, verse 15, verse 16, the free gift is not like the trespass. The free gift is not like the trespass. The trespass, of course, refers to Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden when he rebelled against God. The free gift, according to verse 17, is the free gift of righteousness. And according to verse 16, through the free gift comes justification. Paul said in Romans 3 24, we are justified by his grace as a gift. And to, to put those two words back to back is so redundant. Paul's just heaping up this point grace as a gift. Of course, grace is a gift. That's what it means. The the word means it's just, it's not earned, it's not deserved, it's just freely given. And what is a gift except something that's freely given? And Paul heaps up those words. He uses two different words for grace in our passage today, two different words for gift. He uses this word for abounding by, we have been justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And the gift is not like the trespass. The gift is being counted righteous and having all your sins forgiven. The gift is being justified by God the judge. And Paul makes his entire point in our passage this morning by by comparison. The gift and trespass, he sets those two out side by side. Jesus and Adam, side by side. And then he turns up the contrast so that you can see how much Better, how much greater Jesus is than Adam. And anytime somebody's making a comparison between two things and telling you this one's better, they're trying to convince you. They're trying to persuade you to buy one and not the other, to trust one and and not the other. Comparison is so powerful and effective. It's used all the time in marketing. Remember those Mac versus PC commercials? Samsung went after Apple for a while making fun of them. Comparison is always held out there that our product is better than that one. So we know here this should clue us in the Spirit of God wants to convince us, persuade us that the impact of Jesus on history is greater than the impact of Adam on history. And that should cause you immeasurable joy and security. You can rejoice with certainty. Here's the the claim of this text on your life. You can rejoice with certainty that God's grace in Jesus is infinitely greater than sin and death in Adam. Make that personal for a minute. I can be certain that God's grace toward me in Christ is greater than all of my sin and my death in Adam. Can you say that? Are you saying that this morning? Are you trusting Are you sure of God's grace for you in Jesus? The assurance that God gives through this text is not just the fact that Jesus is better than Adam. I love how Scripture works. God is always giving us reasons to convince us. There are glorious reasons here. Three of them I want to highlight for you. Jesus is better because His grace is wider and His grace is higher. And his grace is deeper. His grace is wider, his grace is higher, and his grace is deeper. First, God's grace in Christ reaches wider than Adam's sin. In verse 12, Paul repeats one of his central points from chapters 1 through 3, which is that sin and death are universal. Look at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so... Death spread to all men because all sinned. The the universality of death is just so obvious. It doesn't need any proving at all. It's axiomatic just to state it is to prove it. Everyone dies. And the fact that everyone dies simply proves, Paul's saying, that all people everywhere without exception are under the totalitarian rule, the tyranny of Sin and death. Twice Paul personifies death as a reigning tyrant. He speaks of the reign of death. And for the Jews, their sin was like Adam's. Adam had a specific command from God, don't eat from the tree. He transgressed the covenant. For the Jews, their sin was like that. They had a covenant from God and they transgressed specific revealed laws from God. But what about those who weren't under the covenant? What about everyone who lived before Moses and Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments or, or everyone who lived outside of Israel and they weren't under that covenant that God made with this one particular people group? Or are they any better off? And Paul says, no, not at all. The world is a death trap. Nobody gets off this planet alive. That's the proof that we are all under the tyranny of sin. We all die. And Paul says in Verse 13, the second half, sin is not counted. It's not reckoned where there's no law. He's, he's not saying sin doesn't exist outside of the Ten Commandments. His entire point here is sin is in the world, even before the law is given. And Nor does he mean that those who don't have the Ten Commandments are somehow innocent. Well, I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't have God's law, so doesn't that get me off the hook? No, his whole point is that death reigns over everyone because of Adam. He told us back in chapter 2, the work of the law is written on everyone's heart. People prove that all the time. So the law just exposes. It doesn't create sin. It just exposes sin. It's like the, the law is the flashlight. You shine into the dark room and you see all the roaches go scurrying. The light didn't create the roaches. It just reveals them and gets them all excited. The law comes, and it just gets sin all excited in humans' heart. You just give a command, and people are like, not me. I'm not going to do that because sin's already in us. But why is sin universal? Why is that? Why why do all people sin, and why aren't there exceptions? There are exceptional people in the world. There are savants, geniuses from time to time, people who rise to some level in their, their intellect their art, their engineering, their math, their science capacity, that you just go, that's like superhuman. That is not normal Mozart and Einstein and da Vinci. I I just heard about this two-year-old the other day who has an IQ of 146. I don't know what mine is, but I know from looking it up, the average adult IQ is between 85 and 115. 85 to 115, She's two, her IQ is 146, so Mensa, that exclusive group for people with super high IQs, just granted her membership because she's so brilliant. So there are people like that who come along and you just go, that's not normal. I have a two-year-old. I know what they can do and not do, and that's weird. But why do we never hear of moral savants? Somebody comes along and we just go, wow, that person never sins. Why not? There is, according to verse 12, an unbreakable link between Adam's sin and your sin. That's why. When Adam sinned, spiritual death, that is alienation from God, spread to every descendant of Adam. Every one of us is descended from Adam. There is one family tree. We all come from Adam. And so... We are all born into spiritual death and since everyone related to Adam is dead, everyone sins. We sin because we're spiritually dead and we're dead because Adam sinned and we die physically because we sin. You get that? You Just picture the whole family tree. Adam is the trunk. All these branches, twigs, shoots coming off and at Adam the whole thing is just chopped off. And it is laying there on the side, lifeless. I mean, there's, there's a tree. All of us are here as the branches, but it's, it's spiritually dead because it's chopped off at Adam. And so sin and death are universal. And all of that is just Paul's premise. That's not the conclusion of his argument. That, that's his premise. Listen to verse 15. For if many died through one's, one man's trespass, I just read that and I think, what an understatement if many died. Everyone dies. This world is just steeped in death and sin. And if you think that's obvious, Paul says, how much more? How much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for a few people here and there? No, for the many. If X, much more Y is a specific kind of argument. It's called a fortiori, arguing to the stronger conclusion. You argue from something that's already given, already established, to something with even more convincing evidence for it. So it'd be something like, wow, if it's hot here in the shade, how much hotter is it out there in the direct sun? No-brainer, right? More convincing, more obvious, and that's how Paul is reasoning here. How far and wide has death spread because of Adam? Well, you can be sure, more sure, more evidence, more convinced that grace abounds even wider because of Jesus. I mean, that, just let that sink in so that you know how much you don't yet grasp it. I've just been wrestling with this all week. Just, just do you consider the extent of the destruction unleashed in the world because of Adam. How do you measure? You ever do something and there are like ramifications that come and you're kind of like, well, that's, Caused a bigger mess than I anticipated. Can any of us fathom the ruin and destruction unleashed in the world because Adam disobeyed God? How many murders have there been? How much rape? How much child abuse? How many wife beaters, how much drunkenness, how much extortion, how much corruption and embezzling, how much burglary and seduction, how much envy and jealousy and terrorism and wars. Can anybody even grasp all of that? And how much more does the grace of God abound to many? I mean, if we could ask Paul, Paul, how can you be so sure that the future is glorious for humanity? He would just look around and go, look how much damage Adam's sin (laughs) did. And that's just Adam. How much better is Jesus? And if Jesus is better than Adam, then how much more glorious will the future be that comes from him? Do you think that way about the world? I just... Just speaking personally, I don't think we do tend to think that way. As one author put it, how screwed up the world is should be taken as a standing testimony for how good it's going to be. Adam was the failed prototype. He's the beta version that crashed. Christ is the new and better head of humanity, and, and we just can't fathom what that means for the world. When verse 15 says, many died through one man's trespass? Many clearly refers to the entire world. And it would be a mistake to conclude that what Paul means here is that grace abounding for many means the entire world is saved, every individual without exception. That's a heresy called universalism. We know Paul doesn't teach that anywhere. Verse 17, he explicitly mentions you have to receive the abundance of this grace, okay? So we know Paul's not saying every last person is therefore now just saved because Jesus came. You have to trust in Jesus and not all do. To die in Adam, all you have to do is be born. But to live with Christ, you have to believe in Him. You have to trust in Him. But while we watch out for universalism over there, there is another error to avoid on the other side and that is thinking that the grace of God only saves some little puny minority of people down through history. That the redeemed is going to be a tiny fraction of those who lived. It's not like Adam crashed the Titanic and while the vast majority of passengers are sinking, Jesus comes along in a little lifeboat and like scoops up a couple people. Or to paraphrase Abraham Kuyper, if if mankind is a tree growing out of Adam, the redeemed are not a few leaves God plucks off to weave into a crown for his own glory. No, the branches and twigs that are cut off, those are the fallen, those who don't believe, but the tree is made new in Jesus. And the tree is saved while some twigs and leaves are cut off. What exactly did God promise Abraham again? Remember Romans 4.13? That he would be heir of the world? It's just impossible to read that to mean anything other than the heir of the entire world. Verse 17, chapter 4, Paul's quoting what God said to Abraham, I have made you the father of many nations. By justifying Abraham by faith, he makes him the father of many nations. Every single person who trusts in Jesus shares the faith of Abraham, and Abraham is their father, and Abraham is the father of many nations because he's the father of all the redeemed from all over the world. Romans 4.18, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Paul just quotes the end of the promise in Genesis 15.5. So shall your offspring be. How shall your offspring be? God brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Number the stars if you're able. If you are able, you're not. How many will be saved? We can't count that high but we can be sure Jesus is the Savior of the world. The world. Abraham's the heir of the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Our understanding of this text in Romans 5 is just way too small if we restrict it to mean something about just me, my, my personal salvation. Like, I'm, I'm sure glad there's enough grace God has to forgive my sins. Oh, no, His grace is... Way more than enough for your sin personally, so don't get hung up on your sin, wavering in some lack of assurance because you think your sin's a big deal. He died for the sins of the world. And grace abounds much, much more. As Calvin put it, Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. Just as all humans are dead in Adam, God is saving people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation on earth in Christ Jesus. You can be sure of that. You can rest and rejoice in that, that Jesus, who is better than Adam, His grace reaches wider. My last two aren't quite that long. God's grace in Christ reaches higher than human sin. Verse 16 says, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So we've already seen the result of one trespass was death for everyone. The entire world filled with sin, filled with suffering and evil. One sin leads to condemnation for all. But look again at the comparison. If judgment and condemnation and guilt and death follows One single trespass. How extravagant is the gift of God? How powerful is the saving grace of God that brings justification, forgiveness, righteousness, reconciliation? If that gift comes after the world is filled beyond comprehension with evil. This is how much better Jesus is than Adam. Any fool can tear something down. When I coach soccer, I would always tell players, look, defense is the easy part. It's always easy to disrupt and interfere with something. You don't have to have any skill at all to go out there and just mess it up, get in their way. Offense is harder to put something together, to string together possession and keep the ball and build something creative. It's always harder to build up and create cleaning up a mess It's a lot harder than making one. Messes happen in a moment and it can take you a long time to clean them up or as they say, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. You can't unscramble the eggs. What's done is done. And just think, can you turn back time? How many times have you said something that you immediately regret and just think, can I just go back and take it back and undo the pain that that causes? Think about how powerless you are to undo anything in the past. And then consider what Paul is saying here about the superiority of Christ over Adam. The work of Christ comes after some uncountable number of trespasses and atones for them all. So if sin is like this river of pollution and Adam is the source, the headwaters, It just starts as a trickle, but it grows and grows and grows, and this is just this raging rapids of sewage. Christ comes down there, not just as a dam that, like, blocks it all. He comes and he purifies, and he cleanses the people, and he unleashes this pure water. Adam's legacy in the world is one trespass. Paul speaks of one trespass sin, one trespass, six times in these few verses, Jesus' generous gift to the world is righteousness, forgiveness of sins at the cost of his own life. The the whole world has been under a curse ever since that first sin, but if if you take all of humanity's sins and you pile them all up next to the grace of God in Christ, is it like the grace of God just kind of barely, just a little higher so we're safe? I mean, I think Paul's point is, it's just, it's like an anthill next to Mount Everest. The grace of God is infinite, more than enough to atone for all the sins that have come before, all the sins of God's people. The free gift, following many trespasses, brought justification. That should be a source of security and joy to you. That's why you don't have to waver in uncertainty about whether or not your sins are forgiven. In Adam, you are guilty. The sentence is death. But if you are in Christ Jesus, and Jesus is better than Adam, then there is so much more grace than you can fathom. Finally, God's grace in Christ reaches deeper than the grave. Throughout this passage, Paul has been stressing Death is the result of Adam's sin. Death is in the world because of Adam. Verse 12, death came into the world through sin, so death spread to all men. Verse 14, death reigned. Verse 15, many, that is all, died through one man's trespass. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. So, so just, again, consider how powerful death is. How, how powerless we are to stop it, to resist it, to reverse it. It's so final. It's so permanent to us. And if you've lost a loved one, you, you know that strange experience of grief they call bargaining. It just feels so irrational because you know you can't do anything, but you find yourself thinking things like, what if I had, or if only I hadn't. And you're just bargaining like, is there some way to undo it? reverse it, to change it, and there's, there's not. We know that, but we chafe against the power of the grave. Now look at the comparison in verse 17. For if, this is another a fortiori argument, another much more statement. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more Will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? This is the logic of God. And it's astonishing. You can be more certain that you will rise from the dead than you are certain that you will die. You can be more certain you will rise from the dead with Jesus than you are certain that you will die. Because how do you know you'll die? Because you are related to Adam. How do you know you live? Because you are in Christ, and Christ is better than Adam. And the flesh just goes, but how how could that be? I mean, nothing seems more, more certain to us than death. I know I'm gonna die, I can see the headstones of all the others who have died before me, but that's reasoning by the flesh, based on what your eyes can see, and we ought to reason like Christians, which means seeing everything in the light of Christ. If Jesus is better than Adam, then everything you have in Jesus is more sure, more guaranteed, better in every way. But that's not all. Look again at verse 17. We would expect the contrast to say, if death reigned through Adam, then life reigns through Jesus, right? That's not what it says. Who reigns in life? Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Through Adam, death comes in as a tyrant and reigns over you. Through Jesus, you are raised and you reign with him. So, so Jesus' death not only destroys death, his resurrection raises All those who were once oppressed under death and seats them in triumph over death, which is why Paul can conclude the entire letter to the Romans in chapter 16, verse 20 and say, don't worry, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What? The promise to Adam and Eve was a descendant of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. So God crushes the serpent through the feet of Jesus, right? And Paul takes that and says, yeah, but that's true of everybody who's in Jesus, because if you're in Jesus, then you're reigning with Jesus, and so he can just as well say, God will crush the head of Satan under your feet, because you reign with him now in life. Adam was created to rule this world under God's authority, he failed to do it, and all humanity has just been tyrannized by sin and death ever since, but God has made the man, Jesus Christ, a new Adam, the head of a new humanity, and he will fulfill Everything God originally charged to that first Adam. Because Jesus reigns in life, then all who receive him, all who trust in him, are united to him, and belong to this new humanity and will reign with him forever. And that reign is not just a, a future reality. We experience that life now. The life of Christ is in us now. And so Paul can say in Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. The grace of God reaches wider. It is higher. It is deeper than the grave because Jesus is infinitely better than Adam. And he just, he proves death is not God's last word to this fallen world. Now justification comes after all of the guilt of sin. Righteousness is greater than sin. The gift is not like the trespass. Life swallows up death. So, what about you? Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Have you forsaken every other source of security and satisfaction and place your hope in Jesus Christ? Are, are you one of those receiving? That's all you... It, it, that's all you can do with a gift. You just you receive the abundance of the grace that God pours out through Jesus. Have you received that? If not, then Adam is your head and in him you're guilty and you will die. But if you believe in Jesus and if you treasure him and count him as your Lord and Savior, then you've passed from Adam to Jesus, from condemnation to justification, from death to life, and your future is more glorious then you know. Let that comparison between Adam and Jesus just cause you to rejoice with such confidence and security what the superiority of Christ over Adam means for you, what it means for this world, what it means for the future, what it means for the glory of God, what it means for the church. If you're in Christ, then the grace of God abounds to you and justification belongs to you and not even death can hold you. Let's pray. Other words just feel so inadequate to express any kind of response to this grace that you have shown us in Christ. So much more than we grasp. You are so much more. Your grace is so much more. Christ Jesus, our Savior, you are So much better. Help us to see that, to to walk out of here trusting, believing, assured of that, and and rejoicing in all that that means for us to belong to you and not to Adam anymore. Fill this world. Fill it with worshipers. Fill it with this new humanity of people born again into life and righteousness forgiven of all our sins, reconciled to you, and turned loose in this world to walk in newness of life and the good works you've prepared for us, bearing witness to Jesus, our great Savior. Oh God, be glorified. Magnify Christ Jesus in us, we pray. Amen.